Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm going to start, strangely enough, with a couple of announcements. Uh, Deacons out there, next week we'd like to have our next meeting after service. So you should be reading chapter 12 and leading for love. Whiting Care Group. Reminder that there is no care group tomorrow. Not because of the weather, but because I will be celebrating with Debbie our 35th wedding anniversary. So... <laughs> so before I start, I love you. You deserve a trophy for putting up with me for 35 years. Uh, it might have to do with nice dinner tomorrow. Okay. Okay. I'd also like to begin by thanking Pete for his ministry last week to us from Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. If you were here last week, you know that it was an encouraging message for the beginning of a new year because Pete encouraged us to live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to walk by faith in Jesus, to resist the temptation to walk by sight, to resist the temptation to walk in the flesh, to live by the law, to reject performance-based Christianity where I believe that God's view of me is based on how I'm doing, but rather to live in the light of our acceptance in Jesus, our Savior. He encouraged us just to focus on Jesus. Thank you, Pete, for those reminders last week. We need those for a new year. This morning, we're going to be digging into a very different kind of passage in the Scripture. One of the things that I hope you're aware of is that there is quite a bit of variety in the Bible. We could say God is a God of variety. When he created, he didn't just create things in one certain way. Think about geography for a moment. If we started here on the East Coast at the sandy shores of the Atlantic Ocean and just drove west, think of all the different kinds of geography you'd drive through. You'd drive through the Pinelands, the hardwoods of the Appalachians, the farmlands of the Midwest, the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains, the deserts of Eastern California, before finding getting back to the other shore of the United States, the Pacific shore, which is very different than the Atlantic shoreline. God is a God of great variety. When he made the things that inhabited this earth, he made a great variety of creatures, animals, insects, birds, in all different shapes and sizes and colors for us to enjoy. God's world is a feast for the eyes. It's beautiful in the way that he's made it. It's not monotonous. It's beautiful in its variety, showing God's wonderful creativity. God shows us his creativity and his variety in his word as well. There are so many different kinds of passages of Scripture for us to read and think about. Last week, Pete was in Romans 7 and 8. Very theological, deep passage written by probably the greatest theologian of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. But think about all the other ways that God gives us his word. He gives us his word through poetry, songs, 
wisdom literature, history, prophetic writings, letters, and narratives, stories. What I would like to share with you today is a story, a narrative from the Old Testament. And we want to think of the lessons that we can learn from that story for our lives thousands of years later as we begin the year 2018. Today I'd like to think about lessons from the life of Manasseh, king of Judah. Now a bit of background is obviously in order here to make sure that all of us understand the broad context of Manasseh's life. Our narrative is from the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. These Old Testament books record for us the history of Israel during the time of the kings of Israel and Judah. The nation of Israel, you may remember, asked God for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. God granted their request and he gave them Saul, an impressive man who turned out to be a less than impressive leader. Saul was succeeded on the throne by David, then by David's son Solomon, and during their reigns, Israel was at the height of its power, glory, and influence in the world. After Solomon's reign, Israel was split into two kingdoms, one called Israel in the south and the other called Judah in the north. The southern kingdom began badly, and its succession of kings went from bad to worse. In the northern kingdom, there were good kings and there were bad kings. The good kings seeking God and the bad kings forsaking God and running after idols. The immediate context of Manasseh's reign is the reign of his father Hezekiah described for us in 2 Kings 18. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Kings 18 or I believe it will be projected on the board. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. He was described as someone who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like David. To say that you were like David in the Old Testament was basically the highest compliment you could receive about your character. He trusted in the Lord. It says there was none like him after or before. What does that mean? He was the best. Hezekiah was the best king that Judah ever had. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from him, 
he kept God's commands. And because of these things, we're told that God was with him and he prospered. In 2 Chronicles 32, 32 and 33, we read about the end of Hezekiah's life when it says, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did honor him at his death, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, was a godly man. He was described as a man of good deeds, and upon his death, it says, all Jerusalem honored him. That's a high compliment too, right? To be honored upon your death by those whom you reigned over. So the immediate context of Manasseh's story is that he was the son of the best king Judah ever had. Manasseh had a godly father. So let's look at 2 Kings 21 and see about Manasseh's life itself. 2 Kings 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, that Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. And according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. As you can tell from these nine verses, Manasseh's story does not start well. In fact, the first nine verses of 2 Kings 21 describe Manasseh's terrible sinfulness. Let me go down through a list with you of the things that he did. He performed the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. Now, if you know your history of the Old Testament again, you know that when God gave Israel the promised land, God was doing two things at once. He was fulfilling his promise to the Israelites 
and he was judging the wickedness of the Canaanites. The people that Joshua and the Israelites conquered were not poor, innocent people who were displaced from their land because God felt like giving it to somebody else. They were wicked, pagan people who God brought judgment upon by giving their land to someone else, to the Israelites. Now, Manasseh was returning to the wickedness of the nations God judged. It says he rebuilt the high places. A high place in the Old Testament was a local center for worship to a foreign god. Their presence meant that Israel had forsaken Yahweh and given themselves to idolatry. During the times of the kings, there was a constant battle between worshiping the true God Yahweh and the worship of idols. Manasseh's father Hezekiah had torn down the high places in obedience to God. And now Manasseh reverses the gains of his father and rebuilds the high places, reestablishing idolatrous worship. It says he erected altars for Baal. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, we read of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. I hope you know his story. Elijah battled against King Ahab, wicked Queen Jezebel. Elijah battled against the prophets of Baal. And hopefully you're familiar with the fact that Elijah won a tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. If you don't know that story, read it in 1 Kings 17 and 18. There's the battle between Baal and there's the battle between Yahweh and Elijah is leading the charge for righteousness and worship of the true God. So Elijah calls on God to come down from heaven with fire and burn up the sacrifice that he had made to him. And if you remember, God answers Elijah's prayer. Fire comes down from heaven. It doesn't just consume the sacrifice. It consumes the stones on which the altar was built and the water that had been poured all around it. God won a great victory through Elijah over the prophets of Baal, and now Manasseh is reversing the gains of Elijah and is reestablishing, re-erecting altars to Baal. It's said that Manasseh worshipped all the host of heaven, now, this, is practic this practice of worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars was strictly forbidden in the law of Moses. In the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law, the Israelites were told not to worship the sun, moon, and stars. These heavenly bodies are amazing. They're dazzling. They're up there meant for our good. They should inspire worship of the God who created them, not of themselves. Instead, during times of idolatry, they were often worshipped themselves. And God spelled out the punishment for worshipping the sun, moon, and stars. He told the Israelites that anyone who worshipped the sun, moon, and stars was to be taken to the gates of the city and stoned to death. This is what Manasseh was doing. It says he built altars to the host of heaven and Asherah in the house of the Lord. Now, it wasn't bad enough that he worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. He actually erected altars to them in the temple. See, as we're reading about the things Manasseh is doing, it, they're just getting worse and worse and worse. 
I mean, it's bad enough to say, God, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship the moon. But how about setting up an altar to the moon in the temple of the Lord? It would be like me saying, hey, next week we're not going to worship God. We're going to worship the sun, moon, and stars. And during the week, I'm going to build an altar so that we can all bow down here next Sunday and worship. Okay? I hope you drag me out and throw me in the snowbank. Okay? Okay. Manasseh didn't just worship the sun, moon, and stars. He erected altars to them in the very temple of God, the place that God says here twice he had put his name. This could truly be called an abomination. And it gets worse. It was bad enough that Manasseh devoted himself to the worship of idols and other gods. If you read the Old Testament, you know that on a number of occasions, God says to Israel, why do you worship these false gods? Why do you worship these idols? You know what this idol is? It's a piece of wood. Okay? And somebody carved this piece of wood and the other piece of wood, they threw it in the fire to keep warm. This piece of wood is nothing. An idol was nothing. And God tried to convince Israel of that time and time again. But it says now that Manasseh practiced witchcraft. Do you know why that's worse? A piece of wood is nothing. It is not real. It's not a real God. It's fake. The reason witchcraft is worse and dabbling in the occult is worse is because it's not the worship of a fake God carved from wood. It's worship of a real world that is totally opposed to God. Satan is real. Demons are real. And it is extremely dangerous to court their attention and give yourself to them in worship. It is to align yourself with everything that is against God. The references to mediums and communicating with the dead remind us of the sins of Saul. And I think I've tried to describe Manasseh's terrible sin, not necessarily in the order given, but in what I consider to be the order of their offensiveness. So the last thing we read, and I actually heard a groan or two when I read this, it says he burned his son as an offering. So when you wonder how low can someone get, this is low. As we have looked at Manasseh's terrible sin, we've seen his sin get worse and worse and worse. Sin is always bad, but it's even worse when our sin affects others. Manasseh not only sinned personally, he led the people under his care into sin, making it even more heinous. And maybe the worst of the sins we read about here is that he offered his own flesh and blood, his very own son, who he should have loved and cared for. He offered him as a sacrifice to these false gods, which, yes, meant he killed his son in devotion to these idols. What great wickedness. Can Manasseh stoop any lower? Manasseh's reign can be summarized in verses 6 and 9, where we're told that Manasseh did much evil 
in the sight of the Lord. That seems at this point to be quite an understatement. He led the people astray to do more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed when he gave them the promised land. And verse 16 tells us that Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Now in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 18, I'm going to not read that for just based on time's sake, but in 2 Kings 21, 10 through 18, God promises to bring great disaster upon Judah and Jerusalem. He promises that because of this great sin, he would forsake his people, remove his presence from their midst, and give them into the hands of their enemies. In this account in 1 Kings 21, or 2 Kings 21, I'm sorry, of Manasseh's reign, not a single positive word is spoken about Manasseh. And in light of this, we might expect that Manasseh is at at the end of his days on earth would find himself in the deepest, darkest part of hell because of these terrible sins. But now we want to turn our attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. In case you are unaware of this, the Old Testament gives us two accounts of the times of the kings of Israel and Judah. One account in 1 and 2 Kings and one account in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, this is not unlike the New Testament giving us four accounts of the life of Jesus, right? In the four Gospels. So if you think we've exhausted the details of Manasseh's life and reign, you're mistaken, there's more to consider. In 2 Chronicles 33, the first nine verses detail Manasseh's terrible sin almost word for word, so we're not gonna read that. We've already gone over his terrible sin. We'd like to read in 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. Now, in these verses, in 2 Chronicles 33, starting in verse 10, we see the amazing greatness of the grace of God. In verse 10, after all that Manasseh had done and all the sins he'd committed, it is nothing short of amazing to read that God comes to him and speaks to him and speaks to his people. What a gracious act on God's part. God initiates communication with Manasseh and his people. And as startling as this this is, what we read next might be even more stunning. We are told, but they paid no attention. Wow. After all Manasseh had done and all his sin, God graciously comes to him to talk to him. And Manasseh says, I want nothing to do with you. This may be the greatest sin we've seen so far. So now we read in verse 11 that God's judgment begins to come to pass. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. The Lord brought the army of Assyria to Jerusalem. They captured Manasseh. They brought him to Babylon. It says that they bound him with chains of bronze and hooks. Now, the NIV in its translation says that 
they put a hook in his nose and drug him into exile like they were leading an animal to slaughter. What's your reaction when you read those words? I'll tell you what my reaction was. I felt no pity for Manasseh when I read this verse, but I rather felt in my heart that he was getting what he deserved. You know what it feels like when you actually see justice done, right? We know how much it hurts inside when we see injustice and nothing done about it because God is a God of justice. So when we see sin and when we see sin flagrantly and apparently not being dealt with at all but flourishing, we feel like something should be done, right? And when we see somebody who reaps what they sow, what do our hearts feel like? I mean, my heart read this verse and said, good, he deserves it. This is justice. And there was a feeling of satisfaction in my heart because I was glad to see that he was getting his just dues. Now in verses 12 and 13, we read, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. I'm going to ask you again. What is your mind saying when you read this? I'm going to give you my reaction. My human reaction was to give God some advice. Now, can we admit that that's always a bad idea? Like, God really needs advice from me. <laughs> I need advice all the time. God doesn't need advice. But it, I'm reading this, and I want to give God some advice. Okay? I want to say to God, don't believe him. God, have you noticed everything that he's done? Well, again, rather silly because God notices everything that everybody does. He knows everything you do. He knows everything I do. He knew everything Manasseh had done. But I wanted to tell God, Manasseh has been such a bad person and king, don't believe him. Okay? I wanted to remind God that there aren't any atheists in foxholes, right? That's what we say. That there are many, and we have seen it ourselves, have we not? There are many who suddenly show a great deal of interest in God when they find themselves in distress. Right? And when they're not in distress anymore, it seems like their interest in God is gone again. Okay? So I wanted to just share some advice with God. Don't listen to him. He doesn't mean it. He is an awful, awful man. God, he doesn't deserve your help. That's where my heart was when I read these verses. It's a good thing that I am not in charge of dispensing grace because Manasseh would not have received any from me. But I would suggest to you that the next words we read are some of the dearest, 
most remarkable words found anywhere in the Bible. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I'm going to ask you if there is any greater example of God's grace anywhere in the Bible than this can we dispense with the silly notion that the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and the God of the Old Testament is not whoever made this claim never read this verse you see Moses describes God the God of the Old Testament as the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is and always has been a God of grace. One old hymn that I love to sing entitled Wonderful Grace of Jesus, the third verse of that hymn says, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled. That is what we see in 2 Chronicles 33 we see the grace of God reaching one of the most defiled people you will ever read about in all of the body, uh, in all of the Bible. And the greatness of the grace of God reaches down to Manasseh in a dungeon in Babylon and changes his life. That is amazing love. That is amazing grace. And the next thing that we notice in the text is that Manasseh was really changed. It says, afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. These verses describe Manasseh's repentance. Manasseh was truly a changed man, like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. God allows him to return to Jerusalem. God allows him to reign as king again, and he completely changes his ways. He rebuilds the walls and posts guards. He becomes a caring leader, looking out for the welfare and protection of his people. He gets rid of the foreign gods. He removes the images from the temple. He restores the altar of the Lord and true worship, and he tells Judah to serve the Lord. He does all he can to reverse his own sins. <laughs> what a wonderful example of true godly repentance. Manasseh was a life completely changed because of the grace of God that he received. This is the effect 
of the grace of God on all the lives that it touches. And we finish our look at Manasseh by just reading his epitaph in verses 18 through 20. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the works of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithfulness and the sins in which he built the high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son, succeeded him as king. So let's finish this morning by asking these questions. What does that all mean for us? What applications can we draw from looking at the life of Manasseh this morning? I have a list of five to share with us before we finish. Number one, a godly home is no guarantee of personal godliness and faith. This man, the worst king ever to see the throne of Judah, was the son of the best king that ever reigned in Judah. Manasseh had a godly father who exemplified how a good king rules, and Manasseh rejected God and ruled Judah sinfully. Can I make application this morning for a moment to any young people here listening to my words? Having a godly and mother, mother and father who loves Jesus is not enough. You must believe. You must love God. You must follow Jesus and live for him personally. No one gets to heaven based on the faith of their parents or their grandparents. Each of us must believe in Jesus ourselves. Now, I am so thankful for a godly mother and a godly father and a Christian heritage going back many generations in my family. But no one gets to heaven based on heritage. We get to heaven by personally believing in Jesus. Secondly, when you turn from God, you can do terrible things. Manasseh's terrible sins were the result of turning away from God. In Romans, Paul asserts that it is godlessness that leads to wickedness. The first step in becoming a wicked person is to personally reject God. Once God is out of the picture, any sin becomes possible in our lives. And our lives can spiral out of control because sin is never satisfied remaining small. Sin demands more sin. And what starts as a seemingly small breaking of God's standard naturally becomes worse. Little white lies lead to a pattern of dishonesty that can result in unchecked in a lifestyle filled with uncontrolled falsehoods. We must refrain from looking at Manasseh's sin or any other person's sins for that matter and concluding, I would never do that. You know, it really is true. There but for the grace of God go I. When you reject God, you can do terrible things. 
A third application is the lasting consequences of sin. One of the things that should cause us to turn to God and believe in Jesus is the reality that sin has consequences. When we considered Manasseh's life after he had received grace, I want, to, want you to notice that if we had made a checklist of Manasseh's sins, when he was saved and went back and rule again, do you realize that he basically erased all those check marks, right? He did everything he could to undo the sins that he had committed and led Israel into. If you would have made a list and then checked off the ones that he basically atoned for and made right, you'd basically check off just about everything on the list. Did you notice what was missing? We are never told that he got his son back. There were many sins he could make up for. There were many sins that he could atone for after his conversion, but he never got his son back. Surely this must have caused Manasseh grief on a regular basis. Surely this is reason to turn to God now if you've never turned to him before. You know, it's common when speaking to people about their need for Jesus, about their need for God, to have them basically sort of give you that stiff arm, and maybe they'll be sort of polite and say, well, that's all well and good, but you know, I, I, maybe I'll worry about that later. You know? Maybe I'll sort of get right with Jesus after I've experienced life, you know, after I've had my fun. This is a very dangerous decision to make. Sin has its consequences, and there are those probably in this room who can attest to the fact that even after being saved, there are results of their sinful life that cannot be fully undone. That is reason to seek God today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not years from now. Today. Secondly, as a teacher, I have some homework for you. I would like you to read the following passages this afternoon if you want to, but sometime this week. And I want you to read these passages to confirm what I'm about to say. Please read 2 Kings 23, 26 through 29. It's only four verses. Jeremiah 15, 3 and 4. I'll repeat them so that everybody has the assignment. 2 Kings 23, 26 to 29, Jeremiah 15, 3 and 4. Now, what I would like you to confirm by reading those verses is what I'm about to say. Israel still was judged by God for their sins during Manasseh's reign. So even though Manasseh received God's grace, turned from God, turned his life around, God still judged Israel for the sins committed during that terrible period of time. Sin has its consequences. All right, let's get a little bit more uh, positive here. The nature of true conversion. We see here the nature of true conversion. True conversion changes one's life. God's grace changes the lives 
of those who receive it. To be saved is to repent of sin, turn from it to God. An unchanged life is an unconverted life. This is important to remember in our day when the good news of the gospel has been so distorted as to somehow allow for salvation without change. Can I say in the strongest terms, this is a false gospel? Let me also remind us that God's grace will one day result in our glorification in a life free from sin. But that wonderful day is in the future. Real Christians struggle with sin, as Pete reminded us last week when we looked at Romans 7. But real Christians are changed people. They no longer live for sin. They repent of their sin because their sin now causes them grief. We should daily display the effect of God's grace in our lives. Others should see it. There was no missing it in Manasseh's life. There was no one who would have been around for the first part of Manasseh's reign and the second part of Manasseh's reign that would have ever said, he really hasn't changed. When God's grace came to Manasseh's life, he became a different person. And by God's grace, that has also happened to you and me. And the last thing I'd like to say by way of application is grace is encouragement to prayer. The best part of Manasseh's story is obviously what it tells us about the grace of God. It's a reminder to us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace is greater than our sins. This is wonderful truth to remember, especially at the start of a new year. Our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Our God is a God of second chances. When we cry out to him, he will hear us. He will answer us. He will pick us up again and set us in the right path. This is a great encouragement to pray. As 2018 begins, don't stop praying for your children, especially if there are any that are prodigal. God's grace can reach them. Don't stop praying for your unsaved relatives who have shown no interest in God or may have even been antagonistic to any attempt on your part to speak on God's behalf. Don't stop praying for them. Maybe this is the year that God's grace will come to their lives. God can reach them. And let's obey God's command and pray for our leaders. Our nation it just seems to be spinning out of control. That's what it seems like to me. We seem to be reaping the consequences of rejecting God, and it seems like we're going from bad to worse. Now is the time for prayer. For maybe this is the year God's grace comes to our nation again in a powerful way. God can reach your children. God can reach your unsaved relatives. God can reach our leaders and change their lives and cause them to lead in ways of godliness. 
like he did with Manasseh. Let's make 2018 a year of prayer because our God loves to show grace to those who ask him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the many different ways that you teach us through your word. I thank you for the story of Manasseh. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that we should from his story. Help us to turn to you, to not run into sin, to remember that sin has consequences. But help us above all to remember that no one is beyond the reach of your grace and love. I pray that your grace and love would be so apparent in our lives that it will be obvious to all we come in contact with that we are changed people like Manasseh. And I pray that you would help us to remember, to pray for those who don't know you, that your grace would come to them too, especially those whom we love. Thank you for the encouragement of your word, and thank you that you love to show grace. Thank you for your son Jesus. And we know that any grace that we received only comes to us through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.